good people. You are listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. My name is Jim Turbert, and I am the host of the show. The guest on episode 44 is Joost van der Speck. Joost is a storyteller who mostly writes stories that translates factual knowledge into experiences that museum visitors will remember. That's what it says on his website. He writes the scripts that you often encounter in those elaborate exhibitions in museums and sometimes other places. We talk about how he approaches doing that as well as how he got into it in the first place. Yost used to work with my wife Marlene at a company called Tinker. We'll get into that in the episode. When she started working there, I learned a lot about the museum and exhibition world. It's amazing how much we take for granted about how these things get made, and Yost is a part of it. Hopefully, you'll find this one as interesting as I do. You can see examples of his work at his brand new website, storymatters.nl. That's story matters with a hyphen between story and matters. First, though, you should listen to our conversation. Get a beverage or settle into whatever you're doing. This is my conversation with Jos van der Speck. Let's roll. Um, thank you so much for joining me today, and I apologize for the technical difficulties that we have experienced, but it, it was a learning experience, for me at least. Yeah, and I, I cleaned up my email folders, so I'm happy. That's great. I'm glad that it worked out for everybody. Uh, usually when uh, when I have people on, I ask them to introduce themselves and tell me what you do. Like, how do you, how do you introduce yourself when people say, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm so bad at that, but... I, I usually start explaining that I do storytelling in a spatial environments, so uh, exhibitions, experiences, tours outside. Uh, so it's my it's the two things basically. It's the stories. It's the the things um, you want to share with your audience, with the visitors, but in the spatial context. That's the sort of what I do. How do people usually react to that? <laughs> Uh, what do you call it? Like, huh? Is that a job? <laughs> <laughs> right. And we're going to kind of do that right now. <laughs> because because I think that one, one of the reasons that, that I asked you to come on is because I don't think people appreciate or they take for granted all the work that goes into making an exhibition or as they call them, experiences. I don't even know that the general public calls them experiences. Maybe they're starting to. Probably not. People don't know what it is. They just go to the museum and they leave the museum and they're like, oh, that was nice. And they don't really think about all that goes into it. But there's a team of super talented people. Well, hopefully it's talented people if it's a good exhibition <laughs> and uh, and uh, a lot of money and a lot of time, like ridiculous amounts of time and money and people. True. True. But to, to tell you the truth, I, I just but you saying this, I remember must have been about... 15 years ago, I was freelance historian and I was working together with this guy uh, who then got another job in an agency that was making exhibitions. And I was like, what? Yeah. Is there agencies? I, I was really surprised because I was convinced that museums were making exhibitions. So it was museums doing that. And the whole idea that there was actually a sort of infrastructure with agencies and 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 all that that was doing that was completely new to me. So I I I do understand completely that people don't know. I mean, it's I was there until I started doing it myself. Yeah, I had the same thing. It was you know I would go to these big major exhibitions, whether it's for art or culture or 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 whatever, like something like a super mainstream one. Like uh, they they did this this Lord of the Rings touring thing with all the props from the Lord of the Rings and people go to that. I I went to this with Marlene when we lived in Boston, well before she ever started working in this field. And it was just like, oh, cool. And then then you're done. But then once once we came here, it just kind of blew my mind to hear what went into actually making these things. And it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And, I, and, I, and I'm thinking, you know, like in a way it also makes sense that whatever you do, if you go to the hospital or you go to the city center or you go to the train station or whatever, you just, you take it for granted. There's a train station. You don't think, oh, there's train station designers. Right. Or there's people thinking about, I don't know, how the hospital works. So it's, it's, it's maybe not that strange that 
I mean, it's not actually the nurses that built the hospital, is it? It's, no. It's, 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 uh, <laughs> no. So it's, it's, it's maybe not that strange that it's not the museum curators that built the actual exhibitions, but probably because it's their stories and everything you tend to think they do. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, it would be good to know a little bit about how the system works. I think it would be cool to just hear a little bit about the process of how you go about doing this and uh, or your particular like you said you're a storyteller but even that is sort of a simplification of what it is because there's a variety of different types of exhibitions and just some of the ones that i've seen that i I think you probably worked on at least some of them there there are different ways to present things you've got the ones where they create a, a, a bunch of characters who are supposed to represent different aspects of society or whatever or whatever you're trying to communicate or I can remember going to one where it was supposed to be uh like an old uh rich person's house what would you call it like a not not a plantation maybe a plantation mm-hmm. yeah like it's it's there's a story but there's also you're you're really you're really honing in on all these individual storytellers within the story to get the to get the story across yeah well that, that, that's a possibility I think I mean, these are the really hard questions. How do you start? How do you do it? How do you do it? How do you cycle? I don't know. You get on and you start cycling. It's, um, let me think. For me, there's, there's, there's a couple of aspects, right? There's the, the actual story that the, the, all the knowledge that an institution has, the curators and all, all, all these kind of people. Mm-hmm. And there's the ideas to make that into something that you can visit. So you need exhibits, you need space, you need ways to organize this story in a, in a spatial way. And in a way, these two have to come together, right? There's the how do we make this story into a spatial thing? They're two different things and, they, and, 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 and at some point they have to come together. I think the first steps for my side are first to talk to the people and to get a, an idea of all the knowledge they have mm. and it's important that i don't become the expert myself because i have to keep the kind of um how do you say the visitor's view the visitor's sort of okay uh surprise or you know uh, if, if i become the expert myself completely then something goes wrong because i understand them totally and <laughs> probably i'll make a story that the visitors go like huh what so that's so that's one part. And then I have to try and, f- and it depends. Sometimes it's really easy. Sometimes it's really hard. If their story of the curator is very, for instance, very abstract and very sort of scientific and very hard to understand for a normal person, you really try to look for the way in. You know, you, you, you try to find an aspect of their story that's you can relate to, that everybody can relate to. That's sort of the hook. a way into... Yeah, hook. That's that's probably the right word. Uh, a way in, basically, mm-hmm. to to invite people to to be intrigued, to be interested, to want to know more, to you know, so they can sort of sympathize with the subject. You know, they yeah. they have they have the, the hook basically, um, and then from there, you know, construct a story that builds up. So you sort of you don't want to overload a visitor with too much you know you want to sort of i usually you uh, use the metaphor of, of food that you you know it's a meal basically mm-hmm. a visit is a meal and uh, you don't you know for starters you don't want to sort of have too much because then you're not hungry anymore <laughs> you want to have little bites and then you know they must be really nice you must think like oh you know i didn't know whatever japanese food was so good but you know i want to taste some more you know you want to sort of tease them basically to to want to know more so you have to think of the build-up i think some of the old style exhibitions you know you come in and there's like i don't know like a long story just to start and you 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 know you're already full even before you've seen one exhibit you know you, you you want to sort of make it light and make it it's about seduction basically you know you want to seduce people to think like oh you know this is really interesting oh let's have some more let's see some more let i want to know more what's this about you know that's the kind of 
game basically and then at some point you you start to think about the spatial way of of doing this and you know the kind of experience that can enhance that can, that can sort of for instance I, i'm thinking now it's actually a project that uh a moment now that i i'm remembering i did with uh marlene on the the dome under mm-hmm. the archaeological exhibition yeah we were in the in the depot opening boxes with stones basically that were found by archaeologists in the past uh and you know quite boring stones in a way but <laughs> because we were opening the boxes that was really exciting what would be in this box you know i don't know what would be in this box and then opening it and, and somebody really boring but then sometimes you would get this really sort of interesting part of a sculpture or something yeah and it was almost like we found it ourselves yeah because we oh, only nice, were opening nice. boxes in the depot so it was kind of you know made sense that we were finding archaeological stuff sure sure it's that sense so then we said to each other like you know this feeling we should try and give visitors the feeling that we have right now they're discovering you no know, we, we should try and find a way to recreate this this sensation of discovery basically uh discovering this these these finds yourself so that's then you know after you have sort of the basic outlines of of, a, of the story you want to share with the visitors it's about when thinking about an experience it's 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 basically yeah finding probably you can also use the word hook here i think find the hook to make it spatial to make it something that you can not only read or hear but experience right as a visitor so so you're working with the designers you're working with the uh with the um uh researchers i don't know i guess that's a another team is there a research team content content but you're part of content too right yeah i'm, I'm like the translator basically okay you know, right a that's language. good that's a good way to look at it yeah anyway it's the whole point is that you've got the you've got the client who has all the stuff then you've got the researchers who ferret out the details and then you've got you who translates it into something that the public might want to want to uh experience and then you've got the designers who visualize the whole thing yeah and then you've got the builders and then you've got you got then yeah it goes on and on and on but like the point is that it's a big team right yeah well it depends you know some some of the big exhibitions it's it's hundreds of people i mean you've got the editors and the animation uh, the, the ones oh, yeah, making right. the uh, cgi and the ones making the films the ones doing the sound the ones i don't know welding and sewing yeah. and all sorts of uh, fabrication yeah yeah so it's it's uh and then there's i don't know there's also a lot of the installation background with ventilation and air and uh-huh. safety and i mean oh, it's yeah. really this you, you don't want to know you're really surprised to find out how many people actually work <laughs> on, on a on an exhibition and then it's you insane see them. and it, yeah and and even you know the people that worked on it like well like the the teams that i work in you know we go to the opening and you say wow you, we know how much work it's been but you don't see it you know mm-hmm. you, you're really surprised you know you see the result and you go like has it really been this much work because if it's there you know it's you don't see all the the endless meetings and decisions and, right, and things right you know, right like right on, on storylines and then things that you know were changed at some point so the work that's been done has to be done again or uh you know changed in some way so it's um yeah it's surprising and then you know another thing is but that that wasn't your question but it comes to mind is bring it up then when the exhibition is finished especially the temporary exhibitions you know that you know they last like three months or sometimes one year and then it's all you know it all goes into the garbage can blows my Uh, mind there's (laughs) so much good material you know so good prints wood whatever uh it's gotta uh, go to the next one it's such a waste yeah it like, really literally. is but it's funny that you mentioned that because uh i mean there's it's the waste of time and resources but it's also the waste of materials and that's one of the things that marlene has been telling me when she goes on pitches lately a lot of places are asking about reusing materials and displays and all kinds of stuff that the museum might already have 
recycling is becoming a part of of the business, which is a good thing. Yes, no, that's hopeful. I mean, and I really hope that's not just you know like a gimmick. Yeah. Or because it 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 is hard because I I know already ten years ago there were some builders trying it, uh-huh. but then you know they had to store all that all that stuff. Yeah, all the materials, so much stuff. Uh, and then it was could never use it exactly the same way, or the pieces would be too big or too small, or the glass panes would be you know the wrong size or the wrong wrong thickness or whatever. So it's it, it really requires a different way of designing and a different way of thinking and a different way of also um, can you say attach value? Yeah, yeah. To be more aware because you know it, you would say it's cheaper because you know you you you're, you're using used materials, but. Yeah, but the materials uh, themselves be... might be cheaper, but then you all the brain power and time that goes into trying to work something that already exists into a new design is is pretty expensive. Exactly, and it has to be stored in some place, you know. So and, and that yeah. costs money as well, and then you know, never it can never all be used. So there's, there's it's, it's it really requires a lot of focus to to make it work. But I think it's essential that that you know we change that because it's it's really ridiculous yeah no i i i I hear you especially like when i hear you know marlene works on something for a year and then you know like then she tells me it's up for three months or for four months and i'm just like what that's crazy (laughs) like we didn't even get a chance to go see it (laughs) um yeah and then then, you know it just all goes and it's it's burnt basically you know at the uh yeah i don't know the word in english but the uh yeah (laughs) not literally (laughs) but you um when you were uh, talking there, you mentioned the old style, and I, I'm just wondering what's the old style versus the new style. Like, so I suppose the new style is um, the experience model. Well, I think it's 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 more it's even more simple than that. The, I think the old style is taking the interest of the curator and the museum, the institution, as a starting point, mm-hmm. uh, and the new style is taking the interest and the the needs. Of a visitor as a starting point, mm. you know, to to in, instead of you know like saying, I think you should know this because this is really important. Yeah, uh, it's like okay, what's what will what is the visitor interested in? What how can we sort of seduce him or her uh, and give them a good experience, make them happy about their visit? Right, and I think that the, the result of that different approach is that instead of you know, like the old style museums, they're like a three D encyclopedia, right? Sure. You 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 walk and there's there's knowledge. There's you know there's facts and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know with the internet nowadays, you know knowledge people don't go to museums that much for <laughs> knowledge, right? You you go to Wikipedia. Or Not initially, that's it's, for sure. It's yeah, it's more up to date. It's more you know tailor made. It's more everything basically right uh so why do people go to exhibitions then if, if if all the knowledge is already there available on the internet i think it's to for a couple of reasons i think it's to have a to go out of the house <laughs> to have a nice day <laughs> sure to have a nice coffee to have a nice experience with your family mm-hmm. uh to see the real thing you know something there's a difference between seeing a photograph of a Rembrandt or seeing the real Rembrandt or that is seeing, for sure. you know, the, there's only one, you know, to see something unique instead of something that's can be replicated a million times. So I think that's the new style. Basically it's the new style is taking into account why people come to museums nowadays and to cater for that by trying to imagine their needs and their ways to, yeah, to cater for those needs. Cool. Um, so, well, how, how did you get into this business? Were you doing it bef- before you started working at Tinker? Uh, no, no, no. I was completely surprised. I was uh, I was a freelance historian, copywriter, journalist, sort of um, uh, independent. And I liked that. I liked the freedom. And I had small jobs, but, you know, I paid the bills. It was all right. And then we had children, two, two sons. And I less time, so I, I started to notice that I was only doing, doing the jobs that paid well, but were kind of boring and uninteresting. So then I was started thinking like, okay, if this is 
I, I didn't start to be freelance to do boring things. You know, I wanted to, to do nice things. So if if this if this is the way things are turning out now, maybe I should go and look for a job. And then I, see, I saw an ad opening for a content developer, cross-media content developer at Tinker. I didn't know Tinker. I didn't know what <laughs> cross-media content developer meant right. at all. Just, just to be, just to, just to clarify, Tinker is a big uh, exhibition design company in Utrecht, in the Netherlands, and they're one of the biggest ones in the country. Yeah, yes, that's true. I, at, at that time, they were smaller and and, and not so uh, known. So I was like, okay, I'm not. I'm, I know that I'm good at what I do, but I don't know if anybody's interested in what in that. You know, so even if I'm good at it, if nobody's interested, it's it's useless. Right. Uh, so. <laughs> I was kind of interested if I, if it would be possible to to find a job, if if somebody was willing to hire me. So it was kind of an experiment to to write a letter to, to see if 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 if, if, if Tinker was interested in me. So it was the first. So I had this idea of okay, let's see if there would be jobs that I would be interested in that would be willing to take me on. And then the first letter I wrote, I was invited, and then they also offered me a job. So I was kind of in shock. So I was like, yeah, this was just uh, an experiment. Okay. <laughs> this is really for real, a real job. I don't, I'm not sure I'm up, I'm up for that, you know, like, um, but then I thought like, okay, you know, I might as well try now that I got this far, I can, mm -hmm. I can see what a real job actually means and entails. And if I don't like it, I can always leave. So sure, sure. Maybe, maybe I just, you know, go for it and try. Uh, so that's, that's how I got into the business. I didn't know anything about exhibition making. I, I knew about history and about writing and about writing for an audience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that part, which of course is important, but it's, it, it was more like for, for the internet and for books and articles and newspapers, not for exhibitions. But you, you stayed there for quite a long time. So I guess it worked out. Yeah, I ended up working there for almost 11 years. So I... It, it, it did work out and uh and i really did like it yeah now you, you might maybe you don't recall this the same way but when you were leaving i feel like there was buzz people were like oh no we, we want to get him to work for us like you're kind of like a hot commodity i don't know about that but uh <laughs> i knew you were going to say that yeah well the thing is the thing is it's it's interesting because at some point during my uh, time at tinker i was asked to have people do I don't know what it's called in English. It's called work experience sure. for master students that that have to go and do go into the actual real world like to, a, to work. Like a, an intern. Yeah, intern. That's yeah. it. Yes, yeah, so I have master interns from the uh, from the master of public history hmm. in Amsterdam Univ University of Amsterdam. And when I studied history, there was public history was not something that we knew. In, in the Netherlands anyway. I mean, it was not something you could study or not something people used as a phrase, public history. Okay. So then I realized that I'd actually been sort of teaching myself together with my colleagues in the practice of public history. And that at that point, I had become their um, begeleider. How do you say that? Like uh, uh, begeleiders. Uh... Guiding the, the, the interns. Yeah, yeah you're, you're their, and, and, their and, instructor. Uh yeah, I, I become sort of the, the the expert on, you know, the, the field of public history because I've been sort of doing learning it. it by doing. Yeah. And that by then it had become also a, something you could actually study and it becomes sort of a, a degree. And I, 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 I don't have that degree because, it, you know, it, it didn't exist. Right. So in that sense, you know, yeah, probably I did become by, by doing, creating some sort of ideas and some sort of theory about what works and what doesn't and how do you actually do it which did not come out of books but just experience you know yeah learned by doing experience exactly right on the job on the job oh, yeah yeah so i think that's you know probably gave me a certain insights or a certain value to to work on exhibitions because i'd done quite a few yeah and, and learned by 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 doing is it a large field of people like you who are who are uh, freelancing at the moment? Do you have a lot of competition? 
Well, to be honest, I don't have a clue. <laughs> I, I think, yes, I know there's some people doing it. Yeah. Uh, but not that many freelance. Yeah. And it's really sort of a niche of a niche because, you mm -hmm. know, the, the, the exhibition design, of course, it's, yeah, it's, it's a handful of companies that, right. that does that. And then, you know, there's most of the exhibition design focuses more on the design part. Yeah. You know, making it and uh, curators then write their own text and, and do that part for themselves. So the need for freelance storytellers or content developers or whatever you want to call them is, I mean, there's a couple, but it's, it's, it's not like you have a hundred of us, I think. Right. <laughs> in the but it's not, anyway. it's not entirely, I don't think it's an entirely new field though. I mean, the, cause recently I was at the Efteling, which you know, is a large, um, amusement park and it's, it's the premier amusement park of the Netherlands. And, um, you know, waiting in line for 45 minutes to get onto some of the big roller coasters or some of the rides you have, all these things line up. These things have been there for years and they have many aspects of the stuff that you guys do in museums, like with the characters. And so it's not quite, it's not as sophisticated, yeah. but it's very, you can, you can see that there's some sort of an influence there. So I'm just wondering, yeah, I mean, I don't expect you to know. I'm just, <laughs> it makes me curious, like what is like who started doing that stuff and, and how, well, I think it's, I think the, the answer to that is, uh, is Disney. Oh. It's, uh, I think, you know, like uh, the, the, the company I worked at, Tinker, they, the full name is Tinker Imagineers. And that's, Imagineers is what I think Disney started using oh. as, as a phrase, you know, creating these immersive experiences, imagining, mm. you know, these worlds that you sure. can walk around in. So yes, no, it's, it's, it, it didn't come out of the blue. It's, it's been sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of combining different... <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, you know, storytelling, of course, is as old as as humans are. You know, we always, anyway. Of course, there's no evidence, but we all assume that around the campfires, there were stories. Were st there were stories. You know, that's 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 what we all say. That's uh, and and then you know, combining that with knowledge and the you know, I don't know the word in English, freie Zeiteconomie, the the whole. Uh, fry, uh, 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 fry tight is like uh, the leisure, uh, free time, leisure, leisure time activities. Yeah, yeah, the, the leisure industry. Uh, people, you know, wanting to do stuff, being entertained. You know, not creating things themselves, but yep. you know, be sort of having rides or go lifestyle, places and lifestyle. Fun. Is that it? Like, yeah. No. no, I think it's. I think it's well, it's. In Dutch, anyway, it's referred to as an industry, which I kind of like because I think that's what it is. You know, it's mm -hmm. this, you know, we think we're all individuals making our own choices. Like, yeah. Okay, what are we going to do? To I have a free day today. Let's, what do we do? Oh, let's go to the Efteling. No, I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's an industry. And there's, you know, people pre present a, a limited number of choices. And you, okay, well, I've already been, been to the Efteling this year. You know, let's go to whatever other kind of amusement and maybe sometimes it's really an amusement park sometimes it's, it's a museum or it's a, a swimming pool or it's it's curated for you yeah completely and you go there you know as a as a sheep basically mm -hmm. you know and have to prescribe nice. fun <laughs> <laughs> and you like it <laughs> and you don't actually do anything you know you just you know it's all sort of done for you you just go to the next stop uh, and then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then you and then you leave with a smile, and you know, yeah, everybody happy because you yeah. know they got your money, you had your fun. Yeah, that's that's the agreement. Uh, <laughs> so it's an industry. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Speaking of the industry and the exchange of uh, funds, uh, you you mentioned before that uh, in one of the emails that we exchanged that you previously studied Marxism or philosophy or something. Um, what what did you go to school for? <laughs> what did I go to school for? Yeah, what's your degree? Ah, um, I, I I I ended up uh, doing economic and social history, which at that point, this is nineteen uh, nineties, I think was the last 
place in university where they actually took Marx seriously at that time. Oh. Because it was, of course, after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and everything. Uh, but economic and social history actually it's, was quite big in the 1970s because it was about giving history to normal people, to the okay. workers. Uh, you know, because, of course, you know, they haven't left paintings or diaries or haven't been fighting wars as, you know, known people, just as soldiers. So there was this sort of inspired by, by socialist, socialism, this, this ideal to give them a history as well. Uh, so it was, it was a kind of a direction which also used statistics and stuff, you know, because there was less personal stories from the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Uh, and they still used Marxist theories, but by the 90s, there was very few students left because, you know, it was not a very sexy thing to <laughs> to be studying, quite a, quite a boring direction. But they had some big advantages as well because there was still the, um, the way the, the university was organized. There were still many teachers for economic and social history because, you know, that started in the 70s. They were still there. I mean, they don't, you don't get fired if there's... Uh, fewer students, maybe you have to go and start teaching some other subjects as well. But they were still there and the classes were very, very small. So we would meet sometimes at the teacher's home or, you know, we would be four or five or six students. And I think there were about seven or eight professors. Whereas at the same time, for instance, if you were studying law or psychology in the Netherlands, you know, there would be a thousand people at the uh, at the lessons, you know, in the Right, because you can make crazy money being a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everybody would go and do that. <laughs> and then, you know, would have, have to sit in another lecture room and have a video connection to the other room to be actually to, 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 to follow the lecture. And we were, you know, just like five people in the attic or at, at the teacher's home uh, discussing and, uh, and everything. So it was... Getting deep. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I have very good memories, actually, of, of that. And... Um, I think only two years after I graduated, they, they shut down the whole department oh. because there were no students left. So it's, uh, it's history uh, <laughs> in, in, in more than one way. Yeah, no, for real. I think that they've worked, uh, I've, they've worked that sort of thing into a lot of uh, Masters of Fine Arts degrees, and I'm not sure exactly how or why because I never got one. But uh, I, I, I feel like... Um, there's a big philosophical component to the contemporary masters of fine arts degree. So it's not dead. It's just niche. <laughs> yeah. And no, no, I think, I think, and now, you know, after that, uh, with, uh, uh, the whole occupy movement movement and, uh, you know, there's, there's renewed interest and, you know, renewed sort of, um, alternative ideas about how to go about with your economy and right. alternatives for capitalism and everything. But at that point, uh, the late 90s, I think it was, yeah, it was the end of history, mm -hmm. uh, oh. according to uh, Fukuyama, you know, that capitalism guy, yeah. has won. Uh, you know, it's... <laughs> let's, let, Whatever, dude. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's just make money and, you know, s stop whining. Uh, and I think now, you know, there's it's, it's, it's changing again, which I think it's... it's yeah, no, I've it's I've healthy. noticed that especially with with young people. I I listen to a lot of podcasts, and one of uh, a couple of them are are run by a young group of people, and there's a lot of discussion of that sort of stuff with younger people, and I think it's pretty cool. Anyway, it's happening. It's there. Yeah, for thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking of uh, lucrative education uh, opportunities, what, what did, you, did were your parents excited when you went off to study that? Um, I think so. Well, well, my 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 dad wasn't around anymore, um, but my mom, I, I thought she well, she was happy, you know, me going to university, and I mean, there was no uh, there was no pressure or no no I don't know family name to hold high or uh, family <laughs> business to take over or something. It was just the, I was the first going to to university in our family right so you know yeah that was a free choice that was something i could follow my own path basically that's cool i think that's great it's nice to hear because um yeah i, I think a lot of people have pressure 
from from their parents to go and go to law school instead for instance I, i've talked to a lot of people and it's it can go either way you know there are super supportive parents and then there are you know some put more pressure on you i don't know where i'm going with this so how's how's it going you got you you work for yourself now uh yeah i started three years ago three and a half because at some point i felt yeah i needed more more space more more freedom more more time for myself as well so I, well, actually I, I i i had a sabbatical for four months to you know just i say tune out no sure uh, tune out <laughs> and i i went to france for a month in, in a house by myself just you know uh, mm. uh to 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 walk and cycle and and, and write a bit and no uh, yeah just just me and after two weeks I, I i woke up and i just knew i'm i'm it's time for for a new step basically i'm gonna leave my job and this feeling i had that morning it was such a I don't know. It's hard to explain, but it was such a from my from my belly this excitement, this happiness, sort of ah, you know. I really felt felt it very strongly, mm-hmm. and I realized, okay, this is if I'm not gonna follow this through, if I'm just gonna ignore this feeling, I'm really sort of harming myself. This is something I have to uh, address. This is something I have to. Uh, well, basically do yeah uh which of course was scary because you know yeah you have a job you have an income you have a family and but you're the man <laughs> <laughs> well you it's very <laughs> it's very easy to say oh yes i've got to leave my job i've got to do it yeah uh, but then i had another few months before the end of my sabbatical you know towards the end i was getting like cold feet a bit i was like oh my god yeah am i really am i really gonna do this am i really gonna do it <laughs> um but yeah, somehow I just knew I had to. I, I just well for me, it's it's worked out fine. Of course, there's always pros and cons with everything. Turlick, yes, indeed. <laughs> Working for yourself by yourself, coming from a really nice company with really nice colleagues, and you know having day to day laughs and discussions and mm-hmm. support and fun and drinks and parties it can be a bit lonely. Uh, but I've I found a really nice work space. Outside, well, in, in Utrecht, where I live, it's a cooperative with right. creative people and um, people having small, sustainable businesses, uh, designers, makers, uh, all sorts of people, mm-hmm. about 120. So that, that, that's really saved me. I think otherwise, you know, I would have been a bit lonely and not maybe sure completely happy with the choices I've made, but this has sort of balanced it for me. Mm-hmm. I saw on your on your website. I th- must. I think it was a picture of that place. I, I, that it must really stand out in the neighborhood because if if it's the building that I'm thinking of, it's yeah, the yeah, one yeah. with with all the the siding on it with all the wood. It's very yeah, undone. It's, it's all built from used <laughs> materials. So it's actually with okay, our is that what thing it is? <laughs> we were talking about before. Uh, right. It's uh, <laughs> you know having there's so much material that's been it's, it's thrown away. Uh, and you know, has a big, huge impact on uh, on our climate and on 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 the, uh, on the economy. Uh, so this this whole cooperative is has been built with circular building material. Really trying to prove that that's actually possible. And it's hard. It's not easy. It it, it looks great. I mean, people come there and they you know they go, where are we? Yeah. You know, it looks <laughs> very different. I, you're gonna you're gonna get different reactions from different people, of course. But I like it. <laughs> I love it. I mean, if you, if you make a wherever you stand there, if you make a photograph, you are absolutely sure that it must be there. Whereas in most of the Netherlands, you know, if you, especially in the in the newer the newer neighborhoods, you know, you make a photograph, it can be anywhere. You know, it's, it's it has no I know identity of its own. Uh, so that I really love. Yeah, it really is nice. It seems like a great place to work, and one of these days I will. Uh, Drop by there. Yeah, come by. Probably with Marlene. So it's been three years since you started working for yourself and it's going well and you're budgeting your time and you feel good about stuff. Is that the goal or do you have a goal? Um, Where are you just going with the flow? <laughs> I'm a flow guy myself. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I I don't have a goal. Not, not one that I'm aware of anyway. Yeah. Well, my, my, maybe my goal is if I have a goal, 
then I, th- I, I think it's balance. Yeah. It's a balance. Uh, you know, spending time with the people I love, doing the things I like doing outside work, uh, but at the same time doing work that's meaningful in a, in, in a way. I, I never feel like I'm actually working. You know, I, 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 I like what I'm doing. You know, time flies by. Mm-hmm. So this, it's, it's, for me, that's proof that there's a sort of balance, you know, because if it's, if it's too much work, then you'll lose this fun. You, you go like, oh, mm-hmm. makes you tired. Whereas, you know, if you have the right balance, it's, of course, it will also make you tired at times, but overall, it's, it's more likely to give you energy mm. to inspire. Like, for instance, last year, I moved places in the, the where 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 I work. I, I moved into another office space. Okay, it actually had to be sort of um, everything had to be done. So the the walls had to be done, the floor had to be done. Uh, it was very how you say very 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 basic. So I spent about three months sewing and you know like sort of doing it up, making the kitchen. That's nice though. And of course, not making money. So you you know you have to have. <laughs> balance that as well but very aware of time <laughs> yeah but you know just like after that i was so you know full of and also because the, the space turned out really nice in my opinion i really feel happy okay there. cool uh, but then you know if you've sort of switched off i've been switched off for three months in that way and you go back to work you know you really feel like doing it you know it's, it's not like it's not a treadmill of here we go again and all that work but it's really like oh yes you know we can <laughs> i'm allowed to work i can you know start writing again and uh right it's uh i, I think that's this and, and that, that for me is really what freelance is doing that's why i also yeah i have no ambition at all to hire people work for me or something because then i would lo- lose my freedom totally you know i would get really depressed because then you know you have to be in the office at nine and you know make sure they <laughs> They work and you're responsible. You gotta keep track for, of somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to be you're respons- no, thank you. responsible for, you know, like that they have an income and everything. Right. Whereas, I mean, I work hard, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I do it when I have energy and I do it when I feel like doing it. And it's so far, it's worked. I mean, it seems like that's the case. But seriously, when I said that you're the man, Marlene was telling me that when when you went freelance, all the all the firms were like, "Oh, we got to get him to do this for us. We got to get him to do this for us." Because evidently, you're very good at it. Yeah, well, t- to be very honest, I I wasn't aware of that at all. <laughs> and of course, you know, like it's creative work also, so you're always a bit insecure. Sure. Uh, also, you know, I, I'm, you know everything. I, I mean, I, th- I think if you do creative work, you're you're always both. Well, not not maybe everybody, but I think most people are both arrogant and insecure. You know, they think they're really good at it, but what they're doing at the same time, they're really fucking insecure that they actually, you know, somebody yeah. will find them out. And it's a fine line. <laughs> I, I can't do anything really. Um, so of course, some part of me was convinced that I was good at my job because otherwise I wouldn't start working for myself. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. But on the other hand, I was really. I really didn't know, and I was, but it, it went really well from the start. So yes, I think people were. Uh, I had enough work, and people were phoning me, and yeah, and they knew who you were. And that that seems like they knew who you were. Yeah, it's a nice, uh, nice network to be in. Um, I guess uh, the 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 one of the the recurring questions of this this podcast is, do you feel successful? And you were talking before about your attitudes and your feelings about goals and stuff. And I think that that probably ties in, but I'm just going to go ahead and ask you, do you feel successful or how do you, how do you think of success? How do you view it? What's your idea of success? Well, that, 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 that's really like, like the weather basically it changes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best it's, answer. <laughs> it's sometimes I feel very very successful and i'm really happy about it with the choices i've made and i think i've made the right choices for the right things and sometimes i think i'm well well almost a failure and i uh, should have become something much more important and much more influential and much more uh i don't know making more money and i i well a, a nice thing maybe to tell is that at the point that i started to when i decided or i thought i decided to go and work for myself again um, uh, me and my partner, we were um, considering to buy a house because we're, we're renting a social, mm-hmm. uh, I say, social housing. Yeah. 
I needed the job I had to get a mortgage. And she was like, so my idea was to get a mortgage and then leave my job. Um, and she was like, she thought that was a really bad idea. So she was like, no, no, we're not, we're not going to buy a house if you leave your job because it's, it's far too insecure. Mm -hmm. So then basically the, the choice was either to leave my job or buy a house. So I chose to leave my job. So we're still uh, renting this house. And you know, then I can I go I love I love cycling, mm -hmm. and I go cycling, and I see all these beautiful houses, and you know I can feel very unsuccessful because I think like oh you know, <laughs> it's it's really uh, that when it when it's when I feel unsuccessful, it's usually very material things. It's 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 very much like mm -hmm. uh, I don't own this or I don't have this or I can't afford this. That's that's the unsuccessful part. Whereas if I think about myself as successful, it's about my my days my weeks basically and the, the balance that i have doing things that i love and the life that i have and most of the time it's that that i value most so i feel successful but there's there's definitely times that i can really feel like a complete failure <laughs> yeah no i i have it i have mostly those those sort of doubts when when i'm talking with people like a lot of the time like other dads for instance from the school some dads mm -hmm. are like they're like traditional like working bank lawyer dads or something and they're like wearing a suit and i'm just like i look like a homeless person and i'm <laughs> you know not working at the moment and uh, I've, I've stopped calling myself unemployed i'm now calling myself unpaid i'm unpaid at the moment <laughs> and like this guy has no doubts he has no he has it all figured out like he his life can't go any other way. And I, I like when I come in contact with that, it, I do feel a sense of insecurity. It's like, uh, uh, that's really funny. I just don't really understand it and I can't relate, but, and it's, I, and I know that it's not like, it's not like a thing and I, I don't really feel inadequate next to these people, but I, I feel something and it makes me feel weird. And I just, yeah. It's a, it's a strange feeling. I don't know if you've ever had that. <laughs> no, I think I, I I understand the feeling that you you explained, but for me that actual situation because for me that was always a big sort of fear that I would end up having to wear a suit. Uh -huh. So I, I if I, if I'm if I'm surrounded You're by like, people dodge that bullet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel really superior in a way that or happy that you know that's that's not so uh, 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 how you say uh, a rabbit hole that I ended up in. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's that for for me it's, it's I think it's the the economic security part that's uh yeah yeah that sometimes gets me. Uh, and it sometimes mm -hmm. makes me feel like I've I've failed something, or, but then at other times I I'm, I'm I'm completely happy with that, and I you know I, I really feel very strongly that that's not what it's about. No, not that I know what life's about, but it's not about owning lots of bricks or everything, <laughs> other stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's like the, like I said, it's, it's it's like the weather. One day you wake up and it's uh, it's like this, and the other day it's. Uh, it's shitty. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. Um, thanks for being on my podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. That was Yost. He's a good guy. I really like how he got into the museum industry. He had a set of skills, and even though there was no specific training for doing what he does, both he and his employers were able to see his potential. I'm not sure how often that happens these days. It feels to me like fewer people are willing to give someone a chance to put their own personal stamp on a new position that isn't well-defined. It's kind of a dream, right? You go in, and your skills and strengths become the qualifications for that position. It's pretty great. I'd also like to comment on the bit about suit guys near the end. Hi, suit guys. Love you. But I've never been one of you, and I don't want to be. And at this point in my life, I never will be. I don't have what it takes. And most of you suit guys are probably nodding your heads in agreement right now. I'd like to clarify that my occasional uneasy feelings around suit guys is not really about the suit. It's just that the guys who typically need to wear suits feel that they have done everything correctly because they are being rewarded. And because they are being rewarded, they can't see how or why anyone would want to do it any other way because they believe that they are doing the right thing. 
or maybe a better thing. Like I mentioned in the conversation, you all, suit crew, project an aura of this is how it's done or that's just the way it is. I have a hard time with that. It makes me uncomfortable and it makes me question some of my life decisions, sort of like the feelings that Yost mentions about financial security. I'm not suggesting that every single suit guy is the same. Obviously, not all suit guys feel that way, but some do. And my prejudice is that they are looking at me like I'm some kind of lunatic because why would a guy my age be in a position like the position that I am in? Of course, I could be way off. And maybe it's just me projecting. Pretty sure the reality is that those dudes don't even give me a second thought because why would they? It's just been my experience that people in the suit guy position are less likely to empathize with people in just about every other position. They're very quick to give advice like, just do it, or the time-honored pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But then, I do the same thing sometimes. It's not quite the bootstraps thing, but, you know, it's easy to judge people. Can you get canceled for profiling suit guys? I don't think I'm in too much danger because you can't really get canceled if nobody has subscribed. So, I think I'm safe. But just in case, please keep listening to my podcast. Thanks for being on the podcast, Yoast. It was a lot of fun. For more Yoast, check out his website, storymatters.nl. That's story-matters.nl. And a sincere thanks to you, dear listener. I appreciate your time, and I hope you got something out of this. As usual, I'd like to mention that my social media presence is at Feel Free to Deviate on most social platforms, the main one being Instagram, but also YouTube, Facebook, and TikTok for now. Like, follow, interact, tell your friends. You can also go to feelfreetodeviate.com if you like websites. If you'd like to contribute financially, check out buymeacoffee.com slash feelfree. That's just feel free, no deviations. It's a quick, easy, and painless way to help offset the cost of running the show while simultaneously keeping me caffeinated, which costs more than you might think. Coming up in two weeks is Yvonne. She does marketing for Oracle, but she's done a bunch of other stuff as well. She's a cool lady. Thanks again for listening, and until next we meet, please be excellent to each other. Goodbye.